0: Welcome to the Flourishing Therapreneur Podcast, a podcast that equips therapists to thrive in business, expand their reach, and create flourishing and meaningful lives, both personally and professionally. I'm your host, Claire Blakey. I'm a licensed marriage and family therapist in private practice. I believe in being a multi-passionate therapist. You can have a thriving, financially impactful business. Be a leader in the community and also a business entrepreneur. You don't have to choose and your impact as a clinician can go beyond the therapy room. I believe that you can be a therapist and an entrepreneur, a Therapreneur. And I believe that every therapist deserves the tools, community, and resources to build thriving businesses and flourishing lives. I pair my passion and previous career in PR, marketing, and blogging with my education and experience as a clinician to equip therapists like you who are multi-passionate and wanting to pursue additional opportunities to grow your skill set and expand your reach. So what are we waiting for? Let's get going. Let's create impact and build flourishing lives and businesses we're proud of. Here we go. We go to Google for everything from recipes to answers to our most burning questions. But did you know that many people are also looking for therapist on Google SEO or search engine optimization is the number one way many therapists get clients and you can learn how to optimize your website for search engines too. This spring, I enrolled in Optimize Your Practice, Therapy SEO's signature group coaching program for therapists who want to learn SEO. Although SEO can get super technical and complicated, Christy Platinga, Therapy SEO's founder, made it super accessible, and I've already implemented things that I've learned in the program. So if you're tired of wondering where your next clients are coming from, Head to optimizeyourpractice.com slash waitlist to get more information about how learning SEO can transform your private practice. Hi, Jen, and welcome to the Flourishing Therapreneur podcast. Um, Today, we're so excited to have you talking about expanding your private practice, taking on associates, and it actually really ties into the episode that you were on on the first season where you talk to the audience about how to build a successful and sustainable private practice, which anyone wants to go back and listen to that. It's season one, episode six. Um, but so excited to have you today. Um, do you want to just take a moment to introduce yourself to the audience and then we can kind of deepen this topic? Sure. Well, thanks for
1: having me back. Um, my name is Jen Kennedy and I am I'm a licensed marriage and family therapist. I also have a doctorate in human sexuality. I'm a sexologist with that PhD. I work a lot with couples and individuals, both who are seeking um, sex therapy, couples therapy. Um, I also work with sex addiction. So those struggling with some compulsivity around um, their sexuality and then LGBT. Those are kind of my specializations.
0: Amazing. And for anyone listening, just so they have a sense, how long have you been licensed? How long have you been in the private practice world? What has been like your journey to private practice just in a shorter summary? So they have a sense of, you know, you have associates now. So how did that even, what was the foundation of that? It was pretty
1: quick. So I went to graduate school in 2014 and 15. I finished my hours in 14 months after graduation. So it was really quick. Yeah. So I got, I finished my hours in February of 2017. I was licensed in May. Um, I started, so it was May of 2017. I started supervising in August of 2019.
0: Okay. So pretty much as soon as you hit the two-year mark, yep. you had a couple of months buffer, maybe to get your ducks in a row and then went straight yep. into it. Okay. Yep. Yeah. So you move quickly. I feel like that's the, the, The moral of the story, like getting your hours done quickly, jumping to the next step, being proactive.
1: And that's not everybody's path. But like I started grad school at 40 years old
0: Mm -hmm. and
1: I was very I've had other businesses in the past um, that I've built. I understand a lot of the business side of things. I've also hired people in the past. So I kind of had this plan in place. And that's why, too, the branding of my company is Riviera Therapy, because I always knew that I was going to have associates. I always knew I was going to grow something bigger. So that was sort of the planning from from the beginning. Jen, I
0: relate so much to you. And I think I said this on the last episode, but like You and I have so much commonality, whether it's because we're both in Santa Barbara, whether it's because we both went through our hours as quick as possible. And same thing, like I always knew I wanted to be more than just myself in private practice. And so that's always been the goal. And similar to you, like here I am two years out of getting licensed. And now I'm like, okay, I want to take on associates. What are the next steps? So I'm imagining other people that are listening are also similar and goal oriented and Wanting more of these type of conversations, because I know for me, as I've researched, because I'm very thorough and love to be organized and on it, there's not that many resources out there for therapists that want just to hear or have a to do list or have some sort of sense of what are the steps I need to take to protect myself, but also to be a good supervisor and to really do it well. And so I'm really grateful that you're one as a friend and colleague sharing that with me, but also for everyone else listening, um, just sharing your knowledge and your experience. So with that, I'm wondering what point, because it sounds clear that you are goal oriented and driven. So that's just a given just based off of what you've shared, but what made you realize that your practice was ready and that your clinical experience was ready to be a supervisor? Like how did you like get that realization, or how did you step into your confidence with that? Because I know that's something that I'm still struggling with, and I'm still kind of grappling around. Is the time right now, or do I need to learn more, or you know, those kind of questions?
1: Yeah, I think being a supervisor is a combination of skills. It's it's theoretical knowledge, which is gained through time in the chair. And also training, you know, what kind of training have you had? I did um, my CSAT training certified sex addiction therapist while I was a student. I also did my EMDR training while I was a student and I did a lot of sex therapy uh, training and I started my PhD right after that. So I I felt like I had, you know, and and actually, because of course I track everything as well on my simple practice, I could see that I was seeing about a thousand clients a year. Mm-hmm. So if you think about that in terms of like the Malcolm Gladwell, like lens of like, okay, how many, how many, uh, you know, at that point I was, uh, seeing clients 2015, 2016, 2017. So I'd seen about maybe three, 3,000, 3,500 clients, you know, hours that's fairly early on in the realm of things, but I felt like the training I had was enough to Get started. It was enough to get started. I, I I felt really pretty clear and pretty strong and pretty prepared in my particular area. I've also supervised people before. You know, I worked in corporate jobs before. I've had assistants. I've had uh, coordinators. I've had employees. So I understand some of those elements of um, boundaries of of what's too much. Checking in with people you know, some of the, some of the more business stuff and, and the screening people, I'm good at interviewing people, you know, that Mm. kind of stuff. So I I feel like I've done some of that process. And so that didn't feel so scary and unfamiliar to me, but you know, I also started with two and it was a slower start, but you know um, I wasn't totally sure what I was doing in the beginning. (laughs) You know, you, you, you jump in and then you're like, you know, it's a, it's a process of, of learning how much to share and how much to step in and they're working under your license. So there's a liability element, but also trying to, what is your purpose in doing it? Hopefully it's not just to make money. Hopefully it's also to build relationships, to impart knowledge, to, Mm. you know, help others kind of understand sort of how to come into this work. And so that happens, you know, you could even like uh, be a be a substitute supervisor at clinics first if you wanted to to try that part. You know that that eliminates the business element but helps you start to get some experience. I've got three supervisors that rotate for me on um, on a day when I don't do it anymore. So I have two units of supervision a week and I've got three different supervisors that will come in and give me, you know, relief support. And one of them is brand new. Like she's a Mm -hmm. brand new supervisor. She's not a brand new clinician, but she's been getting her legs that way. Cause I I said, Hey, do this, do this. And I will hire you. So that's been a way for her to start to kind of get some,
0: some, you know,
1: some legs in supervising. So that's another avenue versus just totally going full tilt in your own.
0: Yeah. Well, and I also heard as you were sharing, like that piece of knowing that, there's also your previous experiences and how that still really add weight and value to your current experiences. Like you said, maybe it's your first time being a clinical supervisor, but you've supervised in different capacities in the past, or you've been a leader in the past, or you've mentored in the past. Um, So I think that's important to remember that our other lived experiences still inform our current experiences. Um, And then also the piece that you said you started with two. So walk me through that process um, in terms of what was there a value to doing two versus one? Walk me through why two.
1: Yeah, the so there's some basic costs, overhead costs that are going to be inherent in, mm-hmm. in the startup. And so I felt like understanding those specifically, you know, workers comp, you've got to have space for them anyway, and they're not going to start out with. A ton of clients, so mm-hmm. you've got some space blocked out. Um, you're doing supervision anyway, and supervision in California anyway can be triadic, so it's no more time for you to do an hour of supervision with two people versus one. Yeah. But when they don't have that many cases, you know, it it's nice synergy, mm-hmm. and and it's not. <laughs> So people say like having a second child is not hundred percent more work. It's 50% more work. It's kind of like that where you get to share okay. some of the resources and they get to sort of be in a cohort together, which I think is nice. And yeah, and it doesn't cost you a lot more time to have a second person, but it it also can financially diversify.
0: Yeah. And it sounds like you're using your time really well because instead of starting with one, and I even think about like logisticals of like having to onboard different people at different times and how much time it takes to teach people certain systems or note taking or all those other pieces. And so I imagine having two at the same time, it also saves you time too. And the other thing I didn't mention is payroll payroll,
1: you you pay a fee to set it up. Um, okay. I think you do pay per person, but still the, the base fee is already there. So yeah. you're going through all the efforts to set it up. Yeah. If you've got the space, I mean, assuming people aren't just working online, they're doing telehealth, it kind of, it kind of eliminates that component. But if they are working in your office and you have the space, then I don't know, I think two makes more sense than one.
0: Okay. I want to ask really logistical questions because I know that's how I feel. And when I've been looking up things of like, Okay. So you just mentioned like payroll workers comp. Could you just, this is obviously not sponsored, but tell us who you use, what that process was like. Was it hard to set up? Do you do it yourself? Do you contract someone else to process payroll? Just so people that are trying to get their ducks in a row have a sense of where to even begin.
1: Yeah. I tried a couple different services. I went with Gusto that's for uh, payroll and I find it to be really easy. Um, find somebody that has a Gusto um, account and they'll refer it to you. And then you each get like a nice little hundred or might even be more, $300 credit, I think actually. Okay. Um, So Gusto is a great, great avenue. The first year in business, I went through a local provider for workers comp in State Farm. But the second Mm -hmm. year I price compared with Gusto and found that it was easier just to have it all consolidated into one place. So they handle both for me now. um, And that's been really helpful. I also use Simple Practice, you know, just for practice management. Yeah. So with that software, I can see everyone's client load. I can see their notes. I, I sign off on their notes that way. I uh, make sure all their payments are reconciled. So everything is really seamless, you know, in that one place and I can track what we're earning. Yeah. That's, that's been my go-to is, is those. And then Apple calendar.
0: Oh yeah. Okay. Walk us through what you do with Apple calendar. How do you use it?
1: Yeah, so I'm on an iPhone and so I just I have lots of calendars that I can turn on and off which is really helpful. But I have two calendars that um relate to the associates. One is their blocked times that they are guaranteed to have room space. So in those block times, when I get an incoming call, I say, "Hey, are you available new client for associate? Are you available Thursday at 10?" Um, okay, great. Sophia is available. I'm going to put you into her 10 o'clock. Like I know that I can see on the calendar. She doesn't have a, she has that room blocked and she doesn't have a client. So I can just put her in. It helps the flow of yeah. Incoming calls to just be able to convert them directly into an appointment time. That's number one. But so one is, one is the guaranteed times. And two is the actual times they have booked because when you get multiple people going, it's going to get confusing.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Okay. So just because they have the room blocked doesn't mean they're in there, but if you've got two calendars, then you can click them on and off. And that's been really helpful. They can also there, it's all a shared calendar. So they can see if the rooms aren't occupied, that they can use them as a one-off if they get a new
0: so it, here, it sounds like you have two different calendars. So you have one that's like their availability and then you have others that kind of, cause you are in, you have your, you bought your own office building. You have different office spaces in that building, right? Cause there's how many rooms in that building? Five. Five. So then that other calendar is for them to mark what room they're in. So you kind yeah. of have both. So you're speaking like my love language. I feel like the piece of like <laughs> organization and systems and it's just efficiency too. And I imagine that, like, I'm just reflecting on like what it would be like to be an associate for you. And like, that's great because it's like, you know what you're expected to do. You know how to schedule it. It just feels very streamlined and really simplistic, but also efficient.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because I'm aware that some of these associates, you know, they've got the newest person that just started is still working somewhere as yeah. server. Right. And so she's got time blocked where she's still making her, her, cash money that she needs. So until we get to her to a point where she's got enough clients, cause she, you know, she just started like three weeks ago. Okay. Um, we, she's only working three days a week. And so she can count on those other days to be at her other job. Other people have issues of childcare or they have issues of, you know, whatever, they just want to live their life. And so if they know they only work these four days a week, then they can count on that and they can schedule otherwise. So I think, and also I try really hard to put people in blocks so that they're not racing back and forth. They're not doing one-offs here and there. I try, you know, it's, it's a big, um, matrix of trying to make it work, but I think planning ahead and notifying. And then also just when the clients call in, the first thing I ask the client calling in is tell me what's going on for you. But the second one is what is your availability? Because that's going to factor into, can we see you like, are you an appropriate referral, but also does our, do our schedules match up or do you need to go on the wait list Mm. until we have an opening that works in your schedule? And if neither of those are going to be true, like if obviously if they're not appropriate, you refer them out. But also I've had a few people call in that want a weekend appointment and Mm. I've only got one clinician that works weekends and she's full on the weekend. They can go on her wait list or they can, or I can refer them to another clinician in town. I know that takes weekend appointments.
0: Okay. That's super helpful. I see, like all the things you're saying are very like, system structure, really trying to create efficiency and making sure that like, there's always a full load. There's always um, the needs that are being met. Now I'm wondering, so a question that I've been thinking about as I'm considering the the leap into taking on associates is really trying to factor, what do I need to expect of my associates? And that meaning like, how many clients do they need to see? Like, how Can you just kind of like break, as much as you feel comfortable, break down like what do you need to do to actually make a profit? Do you have to like expect a certain amount of week from a, a associate? Like just all those kind of logisticals that are really important to know. Yeah. So it's really uh,
1: varies from clinician to clinician depending on your own circumstances. True. You know, if you if what what is your overhead? you know mm-hmm. do you have space that was a question actually you asked earlier is how do i know i'm ready well part mm-hmm. of it is do you have capacity to do things beyond an interest in doing things beyond just clinical work do you want to mm-hmm. do supervisory work of course but also do you have space for for a you know another therapist in your office is there likely there's probably at least 10 or 15 or maybe 20 hours that you're not occupying your office if you think about totally you know cuz if you're there if you're a morning person you're probably that, not there in the evenings or vice versa, maybe you'll only work a three-day week work schedule. So could you know that paired with a weekend either be a rental or with an associate? I actually make a lot more from associates than I do from renters because I've tried both. But in terms of what to expect and what, you know, it, it's it's contingent on the overhead. So what you charge, you could either do a flat fee to the associates or you can do a percentage. I choose to do a percentage.
0: Okay.
1: Um, I do a 40-60 split, which is uh, I get 60, they get 40, which is, That's which is good. a more, more aggressive split than some super du- Some supervisors do a 50, 50.
0: Oh, okay.
1: They, they give, uh, associates a higher percentage. However, I also do a lot for my associates and I would say it's more than the average supervisor does. So I feel like that value is there. The other thing to consider is that there is a employer payroll tax that, um, you incur as a supervisor, Because they're on your, they're employees of yours. And so every employer has this, if somebody's on payroll, you have to pay that tax. And so if you think about it, like as an independently, like, you know, employed person, we pay this uh, self-employment tax, which is kind of high. But when you have employees, you absorb a portion of that tax. So they're they're in a different position. They're paying like 20%. And you're paying like about 12%. Whereas okay. as, as, an, as a self-employed person, I think we pay like 30% or I could be wrong on that number, but I think that's what it is. Self-employment yeah. tax is kind of high. Say if we're going to do just basic math, like say your fee is $100, their fee is $100 and you're getting 60 of it and they're getting 40 of it you're actually, I've, I've figured out depending on kind of what all we include in overhead, I'm actually only getting about 48 of those dollars. Okay. They're getting 40 and I'm getting 48 um, because I've got workers comp, I've got employment tax, I've got, payroll, um,
0: simple practice payroll,
1: simple, yeah, simple practice. Yes. And just, just the fee per transaction. I pay, what is it, you know, depends on if it's Venmo or if it's, um, simple practice credit card swiping, but about 3% fee. So that means per transaction our fees are typically 135 to 150. I'm paying $4 per transaction just in a fee. So all of it, you know, adds mm. up. So in terms of what you charge or what do you how many how many clients do the do the associates need to see that kind of varies depending on your model. For me, you know, I found when I didn't didn't give them any sort of limit, they averaged about 11 to 12 clients. Okay? That's yeah. sort of where they hung out. I pushed them this year, starting the first of the year. I asked for 15. I asked for them to see okay. for 15. And keep in mind, I'm also giving them as
0: many clients as they can handle. Yeah, I was gonna ask where they get their clients from or what you expect of them in terms of recruiting yeah. clients or advertising and all that. Some supervisors will say you need to
1: have a minimum. And if you can't meet this minimum, you then you know we'll have to let you go. I'm looking at the minimum more from like, and you have to get your own clients. I will give them as many clients as they want. Yeah. Um, but they, they kind of max out it, around
0: 15. And you also don't want to like encourage a, like a culture of like overworking either. Cause you want them to be happy as well. So it sounds like there's right. kind of like that mixture of both. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So that's just sort of where, where my business has settled out. I do have some clinicians that want to work more and I'm like, great, here you go. You know, here's more, um, you make more
0: if you, if you are, you know, if you earn more, you make more. Would you say, because I kind of going back to the original question at the beginning of the episode where I said, how do you know you're ready? You kind of named already a few times saying like you are full, you give them clients. So would you say that maybe for someone that's considering this jump, that that would be a really strong indicator, like a check mark that they could cross off of like, do you have too many referrals that you can't see yes. that yes. are in alignment with your specialty that you could then filter into your associates versus Definitely. referring out? Definitely.
1: That's an indication. Yeah. 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 Because um, thanks for saying that because yeah, if you don't have enough clients then bringing somebody in, who's looking at you like, Hey, give me some referrals. That might be a problem. Yeah. If, if you've got an associate coming to you with referrals, like they've already got a caseload because they're coming from Mm -hmm. an agency of maybe low, low fee clients, or they have their own really strong referral source for whatever reason, maybe in their community or their network or their faith or whatever. Great. Um, but otherwise do you as a supervisor have more clients than you can handle? Because that is a good time for that overspill to cap, to recapture rather than, cause for a while I was just referring out all the time, yeah. but with the associates, I can, you know, assuming what's coming in is, is appropriate, then I can give it to them. Now that also means that I've got to get them up to speed on areas that maybe they aren't trained in. So that, yeah. that I, that I know, because it's my reputation. It's my license. I don't want to give them clients that they aren't skilled enough to see. So Mm -hmm. you have to be aware of how you're putting yourself out there um, Mm -hmm. and screen the calls to make sure they're appropriate for the level of training that the associate has for sure. Also set expectations reasonably, because if you're not full, they're not likely to be full either. Um, And that's okay. What's full and what's enough. And will you be happy to just have, you know, another, Five or 10 hours
0: that they're doing, or like what's you know, Mm. it'll start to make sense as you run the numbers. No, that's super helpful. Yeah. I know for me, um, one of the things that I've thought through, because I'm at a spot where like I'm ready to, you know, embark on that endeavor, is really realizing like because I am more newly licensed, I do feel not insecure. I don't know if I like that word necessarily, but just aware of, I'm still a pretty young therapist, like in the clinical world in terms of my experience. And so for me, I have a couple different specialties, perinatal mental health, so pregnancy, postpartum, and then eating disorders where I've done additional training and certifications in. And so I'm almost kind of wanting to teach my niche and to teach my specialty because then I feel like, cause I don't know if you feel this way, there's a little bit of anxiety around like our licenses. And I think that we are taught a lot of things about fear of losing it and doing something wrong. And so for me, I feel like it feels a lot more in integrity to like pick people or ask to like onboard people that want to see those types of clients, because that's something that I can really confidently treat. And Mm -hmm. so I would be nervous to take on someone that say, I don't know, has a certain specialty, like five-year-old kids or like a certain age range. That's not my wheelhouse. Cause then I feel like that feels like a disservice to the clinician that you're supervising because it's not, you know, what you're really good at. And I think that that doesn't feel an integrity either. So would you say like, so kind of like looking at an imaginary checklist, you have a full caseload and you have a population that's really clear, or you have additional advanced training in specific um, populations. So that way you can kind of deepen that for your associates? Would you say that's kind of how you feel too? Yeah.
1: I mean, if you were just a generalist that felt confident and maybe you've been doing this work for 10 years and you just feel like you, you know, a lot about common presenting issues, I think you'd be fine too. Um, but as a newer therapist, yes, I would say that that specialty is going to help you. That said, it's not likely, depending on what your niche is, that you're going to have so many referrals in that one particular niche. So you, you have to be ready to also, and I'm constantly learning. I'm constantly returning to the literature. I'm looking up studies. I'm trying to find resources because you know, my associates, uh, have lots of questions about things. I don't immediately always know. I know about my stuff, but I don't know, you know, my specialties, but, you know, going back into, they actually know more than I do in some things because they've done specialty training in their first sites. You know, they they typically have 800 to a thousand hours and they might've done DBT training, or they might've done work with children, little children, like you Mm. suggested. Um, or grief work; those are examples of yeah, current you know currently um, the specializations that they already have, and so that's also the beauty of the cross pollination that happens in supervision is that they can give each other some advice, but you have to be prepared to also keep learning and and yeah. stay on your toes and get more resources. You can't just think you what you've got is enough. The other mm-hmm. thing that occurs to me as you talk about <laughs> bringing people in that are really excited or interested in our specialty is. On some level, you're also creating competition for yourself, because as they come through and then they go out into the world, they do what we do. So you have to be prepared for that reality, um, and hopefully, you know, you had a good working relationship, and that will, you know, that you'll cross refer in the future and that type of thing. But yeah. um, that's number one, and number two is when when cases come in sometimes, and I'm like, mm, I'm not sure if this is a good fit. Let me talk to the associates and see if they're interested in the case. And sometimes they are, and I'm like, Hey, for example, um, disordered eating has come in and I'm like, I don't know really much about it at all. So go get, go get more experience. So go get consultation externally. So they'll go do that on their own and they will pay for that. I know Lauren's done it with, with grief work and with the MDR, you know, I know, uh, she also did it. She, she consulted with a dietitian. you know, about awesome.
0: it. Yeah. That's so important.
1: There's been this, There, there certainly is that possibility too, is just do, if you you don't have to know everything to take a client on, but Mm. know enough to feel comfortable. And then if it gets more specialized, then maybe find them a resource that they can go and do more consultation.
0: Yeah. Well, and it kind of feels like a similar model to when you're working with clients, right? Of like someone discloses stuff and you're like, hmm, I don't know much about this. Let me get consultation around it or let me refer you out or, you know, that kind of thing. So it feels kind of like a similar concept if I just want to like normalize the steps for someone that maybe is nervous about it. Okay. So I'm wondering now that you know what you know and it's been three years that you've been seeing associates or having them mm-hmm. under your practice. Three and a half. Mm-hmm. Oh, three and a half. Okay. So, If you can reflect back on where you were at before you took them on, what is something that you wish you could tell yourself that you've learned along the way? And so a couple of things that came to mind for me were thinking like, like, I know for me, my personality type, I tend to like take things on really quickly. And so I, I tend to grow fast and do things or like, just are there certain things like that? Like, do you feel like you ramped up too quickly? Like, were there systems in place that weren't, that weren't great systems and you had to relearn the hard way? Like what kind of Yeah. What kind of things would you have told yourself? Yeah. Let's see. Okay. So I would say,
1: um, understand that even if you have only one person, it's going to feel like you guys are partners. You're not really partners. You're the, you're the boss and you're the one holding the liability. And you're the one, um, that has to run payroll and that type of thing. So also, you know, treat, treat the relationship with structure and with integrity and that, you know, ideally you have a contract, you know, you have some sort of employment contract in place. Again, I do that through Gusto that that's been a new addition. And that contract has changed over time as I've realized certain things were important to me and expectations that should have been spelled out along the way. So as I learn more things, I add them to my contract. Um, that's number one, number two, in that same sort of flavor, I guess, is don't treat them as like a brainstorming like hey what would you know i was thinking about this i was thinking about this because you throw ideas out and they're going to hold on to it and so think through what you want and offer them but don't casually mention things that may or may not come true you know and that could be around parking spots that could be around bonuses that could be around um promising that they're going to get a bunch of couples you know don't promise things you can't for sure deliver because they will hold on to that
0: and it will be a source of resentment.
1: And that's, yeah.
0: that's really, really helpful. And I imagine that being kind of a hard balance, right? Of like, because in a certain sense, you become colleagues and friends in a certain way but then you are also the business owner at the end of the day and you are the supervisor Mm -hmm. at the end of the day. And especially if it's your first time doing certain things, you don't know what you don't know until you know it. (laughs) And so, yeah, I can see the caution of brainstorming. Yeah. Brainstorm with brainstorm with colleagues that are not in your
1: business,
0: (laughs) brainstorm with other supervisors. That's a better Avenue. Yeah. Yeah. No, I hear that. Yeah. Well, I'm wondering, so another question that I have as I think about taking this leap is I know that in general, as a private practice owner, there's certain kind of like unseen parts of the journey that when someone's not a private practice owner, they don't realize like, oh yeah, like I do a lot of administrative tasks or I do, you know, like really unfun things, (laughs) but that's part of being a business Mm -hmm. owner. Um, so what would you say are those things about being a supervisor or taking on associates or What what are the unfun things?
1: What are the unseen things? Um, okay. My, my least favorite part of being a clinician is the notes. And when you're a supervisor, it's more notes.
0: Yeah. Cause <laughs> so, you have to approve their notes and what do you yeah, do? Yeah. You have to okay. sign off
1: on every note. Um, so that takes time. That takes time and it's tedious and I hate it, but it's part of the job. Mm. Um, I used to really hate running payroll because looking at, you know, and cross-checking and has everybody paid and tracking down, you know, it's all the stuff you do, but, it, but, but, you know, fanned out for everybody else. So creating systems, I've now got an, uh, administrative assistant that runs payroll for me and sends out, you know, and, and so that I'm getting the clinicians to send their hours in and I trust them. So I'm not cross-checking their numbers like I did in the beginning, you know? Okay. Um, but,
0: you know, letting go of some of that stuff, what else, so I'm hearing delegate and like learning how to like onboard other people to help support you. So you're not like, I imagine at the beginning, you ha- there's probably like foundational pieces of gusto or payroll you needed to figure out, but then realizing that's however much more brain space that I don't need to be holding on to. And I can delegate that to someone else. That's awesome. The other thing too, is depending on how seasoned your
1: clinicians are, your associates are, they're going to need support and not, they won't just contain it to the supervisory hour, because if they're panicky or if they don't know how to do something, be it software or clinical, they're going to be asking. So again, if you have an administrative person that can help them, great, but, but starting out, most people won't. So they're going to come to you and, you know, I have mine staggered in their hiring, which means nobody's in a cohort for onboarding, it means I onboard over and over again. And there's a lot of questions in that there, there's, there's time it takes to get people going, especially, you know, if, if they're more green, and it's their first job out of grad school, mm-hmm. they might not have ever had any of these elements depending on their agency experience. So getting them used to, you know, early sessions, getting them used to collecting money, getting them used to uh, treatment planning in your way that just takes time. So you've got to be, you've got to build in some buffer to, um, to help them and cultivate, you know, cultivate them as clinicians.
0: And then I'm wondering, because like, as you've kind of talked about the way that you've structured your business and you have a full caseload and a good reputation locally it sounds like you're able to pass a lot of clients off to your associates. But I'm wondering for someone that maybe does still have like, you know, a lot of referrals coming in, but maybe, which is true for everyone at different points, sometimes it just goes quiet for a little bit. Or maybe you have an associate that they're not getting that much traction. So, and this is maybe advice in terms of private practice in general, but it also could be applied to if they're an associate in private practice, but what are just things that you've taught your associates or what are things that you learned about building your own business in those slower seasons? Because I imagine, I think there's like this almost like doe-eyed, like I'm an associate in private practice and they're like, but I don't have any clients yet, you know? So like, what are things that you could even encourage your associates to do or teach them about while they're waiting for their first few calls or their first few clients?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. And what I will say, because my old hat was marketing is you don't just market when it's slow. You market when it's you, it's, you always market actually, because it takes a while. If you think of it like as a garden, you know, you can't just seed and then be like, grow, you have to like seed and grow and they have to be at different times and you keep seeding and it grows and you have to foster relationships. You have to foster referral, you know, different distribution channels for for referrals. And so if you try to just stand on it all at once, it's not gonna work. Um, what I will say is like early on when I had a few associates and you know, I hired them in the fall of 2019 and then 2020 hit and the whole world went off a cliff with the pandemic. And we were like, oh God, what are we gonna do with all of our time? Um, so what I had them start doing is generating articles you know, like we all started writing for for the website, and I had and I edited them, which is part of my skill set. But like I said, okay, this is how we get more business. This is how is we generate original content. So mm-hmm. I had them. Um, one of them led a group, you know, and we we created flyers for them. One of them, you know, and I I bought advertising against their articles. So we pushed them through social media with you know I I want. And we've been so busy over the past year and a half that we like, none of that has happened, but I literally just did that again, about, uh, six weeks ago, I sent everybody like prompts, sentence prompts of like all these different things that we can use on social media, because I've now created a channel that is just, that's the Riviera therapy. Okay. Um, and it is just about the associates and the business as a whole. So the programming on there, you know, is getting to know them and understanding their specialties and a little bit of, you know, humanizing elements and general mental health. Whereas my channel is 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 separate to that now. But them creating content helps my website stay fresh, which is helpful for search engine optimization, you know, is having fresh content. And then cool. also having it all be keyworded correctly in that type of thing, which I do through software in my back.
0: Well, and I also imagine you're also just teaching them like when it really comes down to it, like they're learning how to build a private practice through you. Yes. And so that is such a key piece of private practice, having a digital presence, having a good website, learning how to write good copy, learning how to blog and yeah. talk about your specialty. So I imagine that's actually really valuable even if it doesn't feel valuable i know it's like when you're given assignments like that where you're like oh i don't have time for this but it's also like such a great gift yeah
1: we're supposed to be making sure that they're clinically fit and this is part of it this is a kind of a reworking of an exercise we're asked to do which is and i'm sure everybody did it in grad school where you record a session and then yeah. you write about it or transcribe it mm-hmm. i mean i feel like that was really a tedious assignment it useful. So instead what I'm asking them to do is, and I say this all the time, like we're in supervision and they're saying this happened and this happened. And this is, you know, what I did. And I said, okay, that's a great article right there. Talk about that. Those six steps you just described to me are those, why did you say what you did and how did it shift the energy in the session? And what did the client come forward with? Mm-hmm. And how, how is change happening? How is healing happening? Let's, capture yeah, let's that talk
0: about it. Let's capture it. Yeah. It
1: doesn't have to be this hugely like complicated article. It's like, we do this every day. We just have to think about it in vignettes and then put it into articles. And that, that, that gets you a lot of mileage. Um, of course, also I expect them to be on psychology today. It's like a rite of passage almost <laughs> part of like, it's like the LinkedIn for therapists. <laughs> yeah. Because I get that. And then that's kind of it. I mean, I, I give them business cards from, from the go and I encourage them to give talks. Um, that's another, I guess, local way is, um, different agencies always are looking for
0: training speakers, speakers. and yeah. so speak about what they know. Yeah. And they also just named to, you also do branded emails with Riviera therapy. So it has Jen at Riviera therapy or whatever everyone's name is. And I think that creates a lot of professionalism too, and really makes it cohesive as a brand and as a a unit of you're on the same team.
1: Yeah. So when associates join, I, you know, make sure they have a headshot, make sure they have a bio that I've edited and that is parallel with all the others. They're put on the website. Um, and yes, everybody's email is, you know, first name at rivieratherapy.com because I want that to feel like a, like a whole branded element and yeah. they're under that umbrella is, you know, and so when people see, and, and when I buy advertising in the bigger sense, cause I, you know, I, I support Pacific pride foundation, um, with monthly donations and, you know, bigger events. Um, I've sponsored things through the museum of contemporary art, you know, just all of that is through, uh, Riviera therapy. So again, I'm trying to sort of in a communal way, this is the long-term marketing strategy of helping them see, you know, helping the world see sort of that we're,
0: mm-hmm. you know,
1: we're this entity.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So I know our time is starting to wrap up, but I'm wondering if anyone else that's listening is thinking this, and I know it's a question I hear a lot of people ask people that are supervisors, is it actually profitable? Is it worth it in terms of the financial benefit? Because I've heard some people that are supervisors and have associates say it's more intrinsic. It's the mentorship. It's the giving back to therapists that need to learn or haven't learned the skills, but is it both? Is it that. And it's also been a huge asset to your business or, you know, like help us be like just honest and open about that. <laughs> I love the intrinsic, you know,
1: do-gooder <laughs> altruistic element of, of our profession. I'm also a business person and it is, it wasn't in the beginning. It wasn't for a while, but it definitely is worth it. Um, financially it, it took, mm-hmm. mm, I'd say it took about five months maybe for it to really be profitable. And now it's very profitable, um, but it's consistent um, attention to it. And, you know, the thing is you, you as a supervisor invest effort into these folks, you get them, the, you know, their clients all filled up, you get them all trained and raring to go and they're cranking for you. And then they're done and they leave. True. So yeah. they take, and they take all those clients with you. So when they leave, suddenly there's this gap and that whole, and a, and a, void in your business. Mm. And then you got to start over again with somebody new. So you, that's part of why I stagger the hires is so that they, they finish at different times. Although you can never predict that because part of it's, you know, out of your control. Um, but, but financially, just so that you don't have this giant void all happen at once.
0: Mm, that's really helpful to anticipate. Cause that's not something I think when I think of beginning the process, I don't think about the end in that way. Like I do like my hope is like, I want them to, you know, be empowered and have their clients as they start a private practice when they're licensed or whatever that looks like. A couple last questions. What do you lose sleep over at night when it comes to private practice and having associates? Is there anything that stresses you out that you like, Uh
1: yes, I definitely lose sleep sometimes. Um they are all individuals with their own lives and their own stressors and their own schedules and you know, I've had people take, you know, leaves of absence for, you know, for mental health or for um pregnancy. Um I didn't see that one coming. You know, I've I've had Of course, people take vacations. sometimes two, three weeks. That means two, three weeks of no income from that person. So, you know, um, I've had people just sort of have challenges with doing the work. You know, there's so, you know, you do the best you can to get people that are ready to go and that are interested and that are psychologically prepared for the work and are comfortable with the fee but there's just a lot of variables. So mm-hmm. um, I, I, I care so much about this work as a supervisor and as a business owner. And so it's, you know, yeah, it, it keeps me up at night in part because not so much because I'm so stressed out about it, but because I want to get it right. And I want to make, I want to make everyone happy and I want to be profitable and I watch everything. And it just, it, it, it can be, it can be a lot of information, but it's not like I'm so stressed out about it.
0: Well, that's comforting to hear. It sounds like there are normal stresses that come with it in terms of, yeah. like you said, life transitions and people's personal lives and some of the clients that come on board are different things. But it doesn't sound like the stress is like out of balance. It sounds like a pretty normal amount that you're holding, considering what it is. The other plus, I guess, to this is that I don't want to be just sitting in
1: a room by myself with clients only. I, I like the you know collegiality. I like having people around. I like having break time. You know we have a break room that's dedicated, and we hang out in there in between clients and off hours. And you know it's I really enjoy that part. That's important to me. I'm 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 very yeah. Social you're kind of creating your
0: own community at work and colleagues that you trust and value and and all of that. Yeah. So as we're wrapping up, if you have any last words of encouragement, I'm wondering. Last time you can say it, why should someone take the jump into private practice with associates? And then also, what is your why? What is your reason?
1: I think it's important to do if you feel like you're ready to give back in that way, expand your reach, Mm. um, maybe take on different types of responsibility because you just don't want to do more clinical hours, but you have some capacity. I think that's that's a good why um, you know, you'd like to make more money. You'd like to help others out, but yeah, you just don't want to take on another two or three or four clients, you know, it could be a nice alternative way to use your knowledge
0: and experience. Yeah, definitely. And then for you specifically, is there like a beacon of a vision? I know you mentioned at the beginning saying, even from the beginning, when you did your clinical hours, you knew you were going to be a group practice. And so is that your why, or what is your vision with the group practice? I'm a hyper
1: extrovert. I just knew I wanted more people. I love it. I love it. Um, Yeah. I mean, part of it, it was a business decision because that's also from a larger business mind, how you make money is you have other people working for you and you know, you capture, I have a really strong lead generation capacity and capability. Mm -hmm. So it just makes sense. That's how I can make more more income, but also I love being around associates. I love teaching. I mean, I'm a professor too. Like I love that part of interacting. And I think it's a really fun exchange that we do. Um, I like figuring this out. This whole thing is like a big puzzle game for me. And I, it just, it's really rewarding in addition to the clinical work.
0: Yeah. I love that, Jen. Thank you so much. This has been such a great conversation. And I hope that for whoever is listening, that this is also just such a worthwhile, like, Helpful, tangible, whether it was the lists of Pesto and payroll and simple practice and branded emails and all the logistical pieces, but also the heart pieces that you're talking about of like the meaning behind it, the intrinsic value, but also the financial value too. And I think that is really the heartbeat of what we do at the Flourishing Therapreneur is really a therapist and entrepreneur and what you're describing is very much both of those things. So thank you so much for your time, for your wisdom. And I'm wondering for anyone listening, how can they find you and what's next for you?
1: Sure. Yeah. So my uh, Instagram is Dr. Jen Kennedy, Jen with two N's, Dr. Jen Kennedy. And then the group practice is Riviera therapy. So Riviera underscore therapy. Um, And then what's next? I'm cooking up a I think it's going to be a workshop for sex therapy for couples, because I'm wow. trying to systemize like some of the things I do, um, con- consistently that would help a broader range of people. So I'm kind of mapping that out right now. So yeah, follow me and and stay tuned.
0: Yay! Well, thank you so much, Jen. Really appreciate it. So you want to launch a private practice, but you don't know where to begin? Well, you are in luck. Our signature course, Flourishing in Private Practice, is coming October 2022. This 12-hour self-paced course is perfect if you are a pre-licensed student, trainee, associate, or even a licensed therapist that is wanting to learn more about strengthening your private practice or curious to take the leap from agency to being your own boss. This course will walk you through All the steps from the basics of setting up your business structure, creating your brand, building your reputation in the field, and strengthening your systems to help your business flourish. This course is filled to the brim with tangible examples, templates, and structure to help your business thrive and for you to grow and flourish personally and professionally. If this is you and you are wanting in, go to our website at theflourishingtherapeneur.com to join our waitlist to be the first to know when the doors open. We also have a free download on our website called 10 Steps to Starting a Private Practice, and it's available for you today. So if you're wanting to get started sooner or dip your feet into the idea, don't wait another moment. Thank you for tuning in to the Flourishing Therapreneur podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave a review as that helps other clinicians and therapreneurs find our community and thrive through our offerings. Want to take your business a step further? Visit the flourishingtherapreneur.com or our Instagram with the same handle. Connect with our free community or sign up for an upcoming course to help cultivate your thriving business and endeavors so you can flourish personally and professionally. Until next time, I'm your host, Claire Blakey, and I believe you deserve to flourish as a Therapreneur.